0: To embark on a tragic history the scramble for africa um and i guess we should start with pre-scramble africa and perhaps with a little bit of a tour of uh the world and maybe before we um we do this, I should tell you that um, I should tell the listeners where I'm coming from as usual. So Mm -hmm. who I'm reading. Um, So there's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting literature uh, on the scramble for Africa, colonial Africa, pre-colonial Africa. And there's, I'd say like, there's a couple of streams. There's like a, there's a professional, um, a professional historian kind of who, who, I was reading uh, Ali Mazrui, who I think also writes about uh, the Arab world a bit. Um, There's uh, the usual, um, shall we say, uh, pro-imperialist or like soft pro-imperialist historians. Uh, And there's a pretty good book uh, with a lot of the details that I've got by a, a historian named Pakenham, Thomas Pakenham, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, as far as like the perspectives, I'd say there's there's really two, um, and they are a little bit different. So one of them is, and I'm probably slightly more sympathetic to this one, but I like I, there are things about the other one I like. The first one is the Marxist. Okay, so Walter Rodney, um, France Fanon, uh, W. E. B. Du Bois. I don't know if Du Bois is Marxist. I think he is, uh, but in any case. These are people who are, um, you know, anti-colonial, uh, they're part, you know, for the most part, they're part of the movements of the 60s and, and after against colonialism, and uh, they're... Well, Du Bois <laughs> even early, has a much longer lifespan and career. Uh, and then um, on the other, I guess, like a slightly different stream is what I would call the Afrocentrists. So there's uh, Chancellor Williams and uh, Sheikh Anta Diop and. Um, and quite a few others that I was reading, and the, these people, I think, are like um, closer ideologically to Marcus Garvey. And I think when we talk about World War One and Two, and in that future series, uh, I think I'll I'll, I'll want to do an episode about Garvey's movement, and maybe in the a similar episode with other interwar attempts to decolonize uh, colonies, but. Uh, so they have they have different views, and they have different views of pre-colonial, pre-scramble Africa. In particular, there's a kind of a debate about the role of the so-called Arabs or the Muslims or Islam in Africa, because the um, Afrocentrists' position is basically that, you know, the, you know, Arabs or Muslims are as much of an enemy of Africa as Europeans. And they see it, like... They, you know, they're they're looking at the world as like revolutionaries. They want to know who their friends are, who their enemies are, who's on their team, who's on the other team. Uh, And then when you look at like a Marxist analysis, like Walter Rodney has, uh, he kind of looks at it as a different type of system. And, you know, I'll give you more details when we get to that point. But so Rodney's like, of course, slavery is bad no matter what. But slavery is, you know, it's a different mode of production. It's got different goals. um, And, you know, there's mobility. It's not, you know, slaves in the Arab world become rulers of countries. Um, That doesn't happen so much in the Americas, except (laughs) in Haiti, I suppose it happened. I find that really interesting. Yeah, the debate you mean.
1: Yeah, I I understand the position. Basically, you've got European and American, you know, uh, imperialists and, and the transatlantic slave trade, which is on a scale way beyond what, you know, yeah. the, the Muslim, however, the Muslim slave trade started earlier and lasted longer Yeah, and I find the distinction that, oh, it wasn't as bad, uh, yeah I'm not well, so
0: sure well, I do I yeah, so that that's the one part that i uh, <laughs> that I agree with, but we can uh, we could we could debate it more later. but my my you know, it's um, yeah, it's it's a question of like mobility. It's a question of you know, if you're a slave, can you buy your freedom? And all of those things were not really uh, possible in.
1: But doesn't that sound like slavery and slavery light?
0: Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I get, I, you know, it's it's a lot. It's like a lot of words, right? I, I mean, capitalism too is is or colonization. Like there are different models. Uh, like a, a settler colonialism that's trying to actually eliminate the population is uh bad, and it's probably worse than a settler colonialism that's trying to dominate and exploit that population. So. Okay. Nobody. I wouldn't want to say colonialism is good in one case and bad in another, but they're different, and you ha- kind of have to analyze them different. That's my. Uh... Okay, I'll go with that. All right. So, uh, as for as the other the other interesting kind of argument that the Afrocentrists make is like, uh, you know, and Pan Africanism is a kind of an assertion of the unity of Africa. So, um, you know. If you think about why the why the United States is powerful is because it's one country and not the thirteen or however many fifty two or whatever it is, and so Pan Africanists uh, think of it, you know, or Latin America has that too, like a Pan American idea, right? Bolivar had that, so um, and they. Yeah, so they're looking for unities. They're looking for kinds of ways in which the, the African continent is unified. So there's this quote about Diop in particular, who's probably the most rigorous scholar. And there's a writer named Molefi Asante, I think American background um, uh, on Diop. And Diop says, where European and American scholars had spoken of the multiplicity of cultures in Africa, Diop saw unity. Where they saw influences external to Africa in the Nile Valley, Diop saw the Nile as rising in the interior and flowing toward the sea. And where they had buried the records of ancient Greek writing on Africa under a pile of loose interpretations, he resurrected those writings for a new generation. There was in his mind no doubt that the African continent was naturally a single cultural entity connected by the dynamic dissemination of Nile Valley concepts. So that's that's like the Afrocentrism... Uh, historiography. So, if we were to do, uh, if we were to do a civilizations course just on a- with an Afrocentric view, we would have to uh, start with Diop, I guess. <laughs> I,
1: I couldn't do that one. I have to respectfully disagree. <laughs> I don't. <Fair> <laughs> I don't see Africa as a cultural unity. Uh, perhaps in some distant future.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So but you like, think of that as like a kind of thing that has to be built more than.
1: <clears throat> well, that's they're all playing soccer together. Yeah. That's a good thing. Um, but culturally, Man. I don't see the unity whatsoever. Uh, the, the Sahara is mm. a big divider. No- North Africa is, was part of the Ottoman Empire uh, in terms of religion and culture. Very, very different. But I, I mean, the same divide applies East-West. West Africa and East mm. Africa, I don't see as the same at all. And South Africa, you know, another entirely different entity.
0: But do you think that you could make that kind of argument about Europe if you wanted? or
1: You, you could, except that you would have to admit cases where Europe uh, interacted and functioned as a whole. So Russia was not part of Europe really until Peter the Great. But after that, it's pretty hard to argue that you know their whole policy isn't directed towards european concerns and then you have all of the uh, the technicians the germans and and the dutch and the swedes invited into russia you don't find the zulus importing egyptian technicians it's just
0: too far maybe
1: i think it's i think it's a case of wishful thinking i i wonder how many africans feel that way So I'll I'll accept the case being stated. I just, I don't buy it.
0: Well, uh, there was definitely uh, coordination in the 60s when decolonization was happening. But I guess that's... uh...
1: Somewhat, yeah. Yeah, they had something in common then, sure.
0: Um, okay, so the next thing I think we <laughs> we have to talk about is uh, the, the slave trade. So if you go to uh, like Basil Davidson, who's another uh, Africa historian from the UK, um, or, you know, as I do here, Walter Rodney... <clears throat> um, The the argument they make is like from the the, there's no scramble for Africa without the slave trade and the slave trade has does this immense damage to African society in you know from demographic to economic to state building and political that is what renders it uh, you know vulnerable I guess to European um, eventual colonization Mm -hmm. so uh and and rodney talks about like you know the the misnomer of the word trade so he's like it's not exactly a slave trade um so he says on the whole the process by which captives were obtained on african soil was not trade at all it was through warfare trickery banditry and kidnapping when one tries to measure the effect of european slave trading on the african continent it is essential to realize that one is measuring the effect of social violence rather than trade in any normal sense of the word. So if you're trading human beings, it's not quite like trading coffee or gold or sugar or whatever. Oh, no, no.
1: See, I, I agree with, you know, half of his statement. I agree with the social violence aspect, but I don't know what he means by trickery or banditry. Kidnapping was attempted many times and had diminishing results. The Portuguese are a classic example. They tried kidnapping. And then the next time you go back to that neighborhood, you find the local people armed and waiting for you and very, very unhappy. Uh, also today, I think we'll explore some cases where the, the, the power dynamic or the balance of power was not as one sided as you might think. Through warfare, I agree. And and if your regime suddenly decided we're not going to trade slaves anymore, or if you stopped because you were sated, like we, we've got a big enough empire, well, that's not good for the slave trade. So we are going to destabilize your kingdom. Yeah. We are going to encourage your sons to overthrow you. We are going to start a war because war is good for business.
0: Right. So I think Rodney, just to defend Rodney a little bit, I think Rodney is uh, using the passive voice here uh, with you know, deliberately, so he says the process by which captives were obtained on African soil was not trade at all, it was warfare, trickery, banditry, and kidnapping. So, what is what he did the dynamic he goes on to describe is one where you have one kingdom or one state that's enslaving another, uh, that you know, people from another community, and so oh, they're yeah. going, yeah, they're going to war for that purpose, <clears throat> or they're you know, they're they're tricking, um, you know. They're they're engaging in trickery or banditry, like raids specifically to go um, uh, obtain these slaves. So it's uh, I would it's just
1: not, arg- yeah. I just argue you can't exonerate the African participants in the trade. Just the same way as with uh, you know the drug trade, <clears throat> there are people participating in it who are not the imperialists and the colonialists.
0: Right, right, and they're. Part I, I mean, of it I, is- I think, I think imperialists always uh, go out of their way to implicate uh, the locals more than themselves. So I, I, don't really think it's a problem. You know, I think the problem is more in the other direction. But that's, you know, that could just be the way it I is more in the other the direction. Propaganda. Yeah.
1: However, the the warfare is, yeah, it's one African king conquering another African yeah. territory and then selling all of its people.
0: And the strategy. Uh, yeah, the strategy has to be like the strategy of decolonization or of resisting this is always ends up you're fighting the local proxies not the Europeans themselves, right?
1: which also argues against Diops point. <clears throat> if they saw themselves as one culture, then they are selling their own people into slavery to the foreigners. Yeah, which is mm,
0: Yeah, I mean, but I I guess I would say that the struggle, like the whole struggle for consciousness, you know, or whether it's like working class consciousness, the way Marx talks about, or Pan-African consciousness, the way the Afrocentrists talk about is, that is the struggle, right? Is like to get people to see that they're, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying that they didn't see it at the time, obviously. I think Rodney's on much more solid ground when he's talking about the demographic impact.
0: Oh, well, that's funny, you should mention that <laughs> because that was the next thing I was going to talk about. So um, the first and probably most powerful uh, el- impact of the slave trade, I just called it that um, is demographic. So if you th- consider that the estimates are that 10 million um, sla- you know enslaved people arrived alive to the Americas which means that the number that died on the way and in the wars to get them must be some multiple Mm. of this, maybe 10 times, uh, maybe, you know, it's, and if you think about it another way, it's basically the entire labor force of able-bodied young men and women. Um, Rodney says, nothing suggests that there was any increase in this continent's population over the centuries of (laughs) slaving, although that was the trend in other parts of the world. Obviously fewer babies were born than would otherwise have been, case if millions of childbearing ages were not eliminated so there's a particularly terrifying um, table that Rodney has here where you know the populations of Africa and Europe in 1650 were about 100 million each and Asia you know was 257 million so Asia was the big one and then by 1900 Africa's population is basically the same, 120 million. Europe's has grown by four times uh, to 423 million. Asia has grown by about four times, too, to 857 million. So,
1: I I think you should include the middle numbers there.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, so 1750, it's 100 million and 144 million for Europe. And in 1850, it's 100 (laughs) million for Africa and 274 million for Europe. Yeah, I used to use those numbers in the uh,
1: in the history class for grade thirteen, grade twelve, because they're just so telling. It's so yeah. obvious that Europe is growing and expanding, and Africa is stagnating. Yeah. And again, there's that argument that sometimes it's population pressure that drives social or techno- technological change.
0: Exactly. We yeah. have
1: to make an adjustment that we have so many people here. We got to do something. Well, Africa doesn't make that adjustment.
0: Yeah. An ecological, um, ecological adaptation. So one of the arguments Rodney makes is like the, the tsetse fly, which is still a problem in Africa um, in terms of like what they can do agriculturally or whether they can you know, settle in a place. Um, if you have sufficient population density, they're able to eliminate the tsetse fly. And if not, they're not. So they're just parts of Africa that become no-go zones because of this popular, you know, because of a lack of population. Yeah. Um, there's also, because, because so much of the economy is based on slaves, it's kind of hard to design an economic project that involves, you know, requires laborers that may then be stolen. Um, you know, it makes other economic pursuits fairly difficult to do. Um, and, that, and that is... Enormously important. Yeah,
1: yeah. Your your workers are going to run the moment that they suspect the slave traders are are coming. Yeah. So it's pretty hard to get things done.
0: Um, the Europeans also knew this uh, because when they, you know, uh, on the Gold Coast, as I think you're going to talk about with the West Coast um, of Africa, they when they wanted gold, they'd actually discourage slave trade uh, because they knew up to the 17th century, they knew that it was such a destabilizing force. And then they realized, you know, they could actually make more money uh, in in slave trade. So um, there's a quote. uh, Rodney's not writing this. Rodney's quoting someone. He says, as one fortunate marauding makes a native rich in a day, they therefore exert themselves rather in war, robbery, and plunder than in the old business of digging and collecting gold. I love the the like shock and horror that the Europeans have that this business that they've uh, that they're you know sponsoring is having bad effects. So from 1700 to between 1700 and 1710, the Gold Coast basically switched to primarily slave trade based, and it's supplying at this stage five thousand to six thousand captives a year. And it's a little bit like if you know how you know, modern fisheries dis- fish out you know, areas and deplete them and move along. It's basically how the Europeans treated uh, this coast of Africa. So, quoting Rodney again, between the Senegal and Kunin rivers, had at least a few years experience... Uh, like every every area between these rivers had at least a few years' experience of intensive trade in slave and slaves with all its consequences in the history of Eastern Nigeria, the Congo, northern Angola, and Dahomey, which is I guess now Ghana, right? Dahomey is or Nigeria. no, it's part of Nigeria. Wheres Dahomey? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I used to know this I, I had I keep having to look it up because in the nineteenth century, Dahomey is like. Well they were
1: highly prized
0: uh slaves. Benin, I guess. Benin. Yeah. yeah. They
1: okay. were highly prized as uh warriors and
0: I guess it's and yeah, the uh, the Toto. Amazon legend
1: comes from there
0: there was Toghana. a and
1: king who had a bodyguard of uh, female
0: warriors. Oh, yeah, the famous female warriors. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk. About, I have notes on them that we can get back to. There were periods extending over decades where exports remained at an average of many thousands per year. Most of those areas were also relatively highly developed within the African context. They were leading forces inside Africa whose energies would otherwise have gone towards their own self-improvement and the betterment of the continent as a whole. Um, so, here's another one that probably Malthusian-inclined uh, environmentalists wouldn't understand because they just think, oh, people eating leads to famine. In fact, if you don't have enough people, you have famine. So, um, uh, Rodney quotes, the, the present generation of Africans will readily recall that in the colonial period when able-bodied men left their homes as migrant laborers, that upset the farming routine in the home districts and often caused famines. Slave trading, after all, meant migration of labor in a manner 100 times more brutal and disruptive. It also disrupts the remaining population. Uh, slaving prevented the remaining population from engaging in agriculture and industry, and it employed professional slave hunters and warriors to destroy rather than to build. Uh, quite apart from the moral and immense suffering that it caused, the European slave trade was economically totally irrational from the viewpoint of African development, which you can imagine is not the viewpoint that the people in charge of Africa are uh, Taking Um, And the other issue in terms of economics is markets. So African country markets are are very small individually. Um, And when we get to the colonization phase, uh, the scramble, um, they're not integrating these markets with each other. They're just uh, exerting monopoly power over those segmented markets that do exist. So Rodney identifies two... Key zones from which people are captured. Um, one is West Africa, from Senegal to Angola, and w- extending a buffer zone of capture about 200 miles inland from those coasts. And then East Central Africa: Tanzania, Mozambique, Malawi, Northern Zambia, and Eastern Congo. But he points out that if you're, you know, talk about the unity of Africa again, um, if you're de-developing basically these zones, you're develop it. The effects. Ripple through the whole continent. Mm. Um, So, to talk about some of these trade um, links, Uh, historically, pre colonial, there's considerable trade between East Africa and India. Um, You know, they call them Arabs, (laughs) but it's a bit of a complicated term in the sense that they're from all over the region. You know, uh, maybe the lingua franca is Arabic or something, but. Um, gradually, they're displaced by the Portuguese, um, and the Portuguese take over the various networks because they're better sailors, I guess. Like that, the, uh, eventually, they take over the maritime trade from the, the the quote unquote Arabs.
1: Yeah, their warships are significantly better by the late fifteen, early sixteen hundreds. Yeah.
0: So, um, and it's like the so-called country trade later done by the East India Company. Um, they find it more profitable to actually trade locally use their ships to do local trade than to buy things and sell them in Europe. Um, so they're doing gold. Um, they're buying cotton in India and selling it for slaves in Africa. Then they're using the slaves to mine gold in Africa in some cases. Um, they're buying silk and spices. Um, and they're selling, you know, one of the things Rodney points out is the goods they sell, the European goods they sell, They're not even that important. um, And they don't really, you know, he says, let me just quote it. Old sheets, cast off uniforms, technologically outdated firearms, and lots of odds and ends found guaranteed markets in Africa. And uh, you'll see that's still the case. Like there's a whole, there's a documentary I watched like 15 years ago called T-shirt travels where she traces um, T-shirts uh from you know you that you donate to goodwill or salvation army or whatever and they end up getting bundled and sold in in places like zambia mm. um so and 19th century yeah he points out that 19th century international law was not really international <laughs> like that nobody asked any africans what they thought no um so Rodney actually argues that it's more economic power. I think you made this point too, Dave. You were saying that the military balance was not quite so imbalanced until quite late in the game. So to quote Rodney, he says, Europeans found it impossible to conquer Africans during the early centuries of trade, except in isolated spots on the coast. European power resided in their system of production, which was at a somewhat higher level than Africa's at the time. Um, He talks about things like ocean navigation, cannon, metal uh, work in terms of pots and pans, wider literacy, bureaucratic and financial organization, which is, I guess, a big part of how the British in particular outcompeted the other empires eventually. Um, Some African rulers found European goods sufficiently desirable to hand over captives, which they had taken in warfare. And he describes that as basically the start of the whole process. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's another reason that the the, the balance <clears throat> is different in, these, in the early years, and that's because Europeans very seldom moved inland. They preferred to stay near the sea, <laughs> near their ships and their escape route, I suppose. And they primarily traded with coastal people. So large parts of the continent were inaccessible or, or even uninhabitable for Europeans. Because they just died. They died of malaria, something that they were not as, uh, uh, I guess, immune to. It's only in the middle decades of the 19th century that things changed. And and one of those things was the discovery of uh, uh, quinine, and that made an enormous difference. It, It allowed Europeans to survive in the hinterland of Africa, and that's when you start getting these waves of European explorers uh, mapping great parts of East Africa and Central Africa. It's not the only reason, but it is, you know, part of it. So, I think you were going to use as the picture for this episode a map of Africa in the 1880s, yeah,
0: yeah. Or there's is a, before there's, and after, there's a few of them, yeah. I'll, yeah, I think we'll use the We'll do the before and after at the end. We'll just do the 1880 map for the artwork for this one. So
1: Because it's fascinating. Yeah. E- even by 1880, European control of African territory was still extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases, it's islands off the coast of Africa. So uh, Madeira and Cabo Verde for Portugal, the Canary Islands for Spain, uh, São Tomé and Príncipe, again Spain, uh, Reunion, the French, Mauritius and the Seychelles, the British as far as direct control also of of the uh, of the continent, also extremely limited by this time Algeria has been taken over by the French uh, but Morocco is still independent. Spain owns a couple of enclaves uh, Chuta, I, I always pronounce this one wrong Ceuta Ceuta. Or and, Thelta, I guess, if it's uh, yeah, Spanish. It's yeah, and Melilla. And then as you go down the coast of West Africa, you have these very small pieces of territory that do not match the entirety of the modern country. So there's a little piece of Senegal owned by the French, the mouth of the Gambia River by the British, uh, a little piece of Guinea controlled by Portugal, Sierra Leone by the British, and then uh, Liberia, which is so unusual, so different from the other colonies, that I thought I'd just mention what it looks like now.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a few notes that come up in Rodney about the economy, so it'll be good to uh, it'll be good to to have that intro now. Yeah, yeah.
1: So Liberia is a West African country founded by uh, free Af- free ap- former slaves, free people from the United States. And a group of African-Americans began to emigrate back to Africa. So they are free, most of them fairly recently freed, And it was funded and organized by the American Colonization Society.
0: So colonization here is understood to be a progressive force for helping these free people get out of the oppressive (laughs) American United States.
1: Well, the language, yeah, the language is very different because we haven't met Hobson yet. But they're they're thinking like the Greek colonies of the ancient world where you know, we just have surplus people and we're going to move them to a place where, you know, they can start their own place. So you have two uh, motives for this. One, I suppose, would be the, the freed slaves who would like to get out of the United States and who can blame them. It's almost like they have a, a, a vision of the future, which is not going to get that much better. Yeah. But, but there's also a group of whites that are willing to help them. And, you
0: know, you wonder about the mixture of motives
1: that, that they've got going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this with the, with the uh, Civil War episodes, how Lincoln actually approached the black leaders during the Civil War and said, how about we deport you all? <laughs> and they didn't go for it.
1: Yeah, how about you guys go home? <laughs> yeah, Never mind that for many of them, you know, they've been many generations in mm. the U.S., In any case, these uh, settlers, to call them that, were Hmm. basically shipped to Liberia, uh, dropped off at the coast. In some case, they had a a handful of money, uh, maybe a a shovel and a bag of seed, and uh, good luck. Wow. And, of course, they died. The mortality rate of these settlers (laughs) is among the highest ever Recorded, accurately recorded in human history. Between 1820 and 1843, 4,571 uh, settlers or emigrants or re emigrants, what, what to call them, 4,571 landed in Liberia. And 20 years later, only 1,819 were still alive. Wow. So, uh, basically the American colonization society is taking freed slaves from America and dumping them on the coast of West Africa. And I think that's a fair term to use in this case, Uh, you know, once they're there, they're on their own in 1847, the, uh, United States basically granted Liberia its independence. And again, the motives are not, you know, uh, political justice or uh, <laughs> humanitarianism. It's like washing your hands of the place.
0: Yeah.
1: The, the American Colonization Society and a couple of northern state governments continued to support them financially. And they continued to send them freed slaves into the 1870s.
0: Yeah, right. 1847, eh? That's amazing. That's so early.
1: Well, pre Civil War. So, yeah. yeah. So, the United States government uh, was asked by the Colonization Society to make Liberia an American colony, or at least to establish a formal protectorate. And the United States declined those requests.
0: They're just so anti colonial. They just don't want to be a colonizer
1: yeah, that's exactly it yeah. But they did exercise what, what, what some historians call a moral protectorate over Liberia. So if there was a threat to uh, Liberian territory or, or you know sovereignty, then the Americans would use uh, diplomatic means. they weren't going to send their army to help them, but they would use diplomatic means to warn off. So basically they' they're warning off, other imperial
0: powers to say, "Uh-uh, right. you leave Liberia alone." But from a from an economic perspective, it is, and and even post Scramble for Africa, it is uh basically the or one of the American colonies. Um, they don't hand it over to any other.
1: Well, yeah. You know, if you're going to say nobody else touched this place, then you are yeah. reserving it for yourself, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And that does so. does not that include some kind of moral. Responsibility, apparently not. If we continue down the Western coast of Africa, you reach the Gold Coast, uh, another British territory, but it's just a collection of forts on the coast. And we'll get into that in in greater detail a little later on. Uh, Lagos in Nigeria, controlled by the British, there is a sizable French territory on the edge of the Congo. And there are sizable territories in Angola and Mozambique, controlled by Portugal.
0: So the the Lagos and Gold Coast forts, these are like basically some kind of treaty arrangement with the local power?
1: You know, the the treaties come later.
0: It's It's just business. We're just here. Yeah, we just
1: opened a store in, in your territory and, well, I'll explain in more detail a little later on. Uh, the Cape Colony is now British and the Dutch settlers who lived there uh, left. They uh, They were Dutch Calvinists. They did not like being under British control. They definitely did not like the morality think of all the British adventurers and uh yahoos that will come in here looking for a quick buck and these are not the people that these Dutch Calvinists want with them so So, when the
0: British send their their people to the to the Cape Colony they're not sending their best
1: oh no far from it
0: so the the Dutch
1: settlers who called themselves bullers it it means farmer But the Boers decided to leave, so they organized the Great Trek, T-R-E-K, a term borrowed by Gene Roddenberry quite a few years later for his (laughs) uh, space opera, Star Trek. It means a long journey. So they left, they moved north, and they set up the Orange Free State, the South African Republic, and uh, I think the Transvaal is the third. So they set up a couple of Boer republics and immediately started fighting with the local indigenous population over grazing rights and land rights and so on. So with the exception of Algeria and the Cape colony, Western control on the West coast of Africa is usually limited to a coastal strip. And sometimes it's just the mouth of an important river. I mean that does give them a lot of leverage and control, but they're not planting colonies the way we've seen before okay. if you If you go to North Africa uh, Tunisia and Libya are still technically Ottoman territory. I mean their control is obviously hardly there, but technically they're part of the Ottoman Empire and and inland from those territories, you still have Uh, at least a dozen significant West and and Central African states. Uh, Timbuktu is still a big power. There are kingdoms in Wasulu and the Kong, the Ashanti on the Gold Coast, more on them later. Dahomey we mentioned. Uh, The Oyo, Benin. There's an empire uh, of Kanembornu and the Sokoto Caliphate. Interesting history there.
0: And there are more yeah, kingdoms. In... Territorially yeah. huge. Um, yeah. When you look at the Sokoto Caliphate on our, our map here. Yeah. And there are uh, several
1: more kingdoms in Central Africa. There's a kingdom of Madagascar. There's a sultan in Zanzibar. And several more sultanates along the, uh, the Horn of Africa. And then, of course, the Ethiopian Empire, which we will also get to mm-hmm. in this episode. So... We thought we would take a closer look at just a couple of places. I mean, to to try to do the pre-scramble history of Africa justice, we would need about fifteen episodes.
0: Yeah,
1: and neither of us are uh, even remotely specialists in those areas. Well, I I shouldn't say that. (laughs) Actually, this episode, the Gold Coast piece, uh, I know a fair bit about. It was the subject of my. Master's thesis. Well, there you go. So I wrote a hundred and seventy-seven page
0: book about it, and you probably and, never got to teach it in this detail. No, never. <laughs> uh, and
1: did some research at the Public Record Office in uh, South of London.
0: So near, near What was your What was your thesis? Was it your Was it this man on the spot thing?
1: Uh, it was. Basically, why did the British mess up? Because they Mm -hmm. certainly did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll I'll give you the, the thesis question a little later, but here's a little description of what went on before this period. So I think we mentioned under the episode about mercantilism that the British set up the Royal African Company in 1660. So the king grants a group of merchants a monopoly of trade to Africa, and in return, they give him cash for, for the charter that they got. So a quick way for the King to make money. And then he's encouraging business. So these African merchants sail to the coast of Africa. What can we trade for? And it wasn't long before they realized that, uh, slaves would, would be the most profitable commodity. In 1752, they were renamed, replaced by the African company of merchants same company, new name, same business, the slave trade. And in the Gold Coast, present day Ghana, their assets consisted of nine trading posts. They were called factories, not because they manufactured anything, but because the chief of the fort was called a factor. He's not a military officer, really. He's he's like the manager of the trading post. And the largest of these posts the administrative center of the whole deal was at Cape Coast Castle now the company's managed by the african committee nine committee members three each from london liverpool and bristol the three big centers of the slave trade they were elected from the you know group of merchants in these cities and anybody could become a member of the of the company you just pay 40 shillings and then you get a vote as to who's going to be on the committee. And the company was funded by an annual grant approved by Parliament. It was £10,000, and in 1807, they uh, increased that grant to £23,000. It's an interesting relationship where Parliament is you know, sponsoring the slave trade And this was to cover the costs of the forts and the London office of the company. But that also means the committee is subject to the crown and they have to report to the minister of the exchequer, to the admiralty. And from 1782 on the secretary at war, they had to report to them as well. So interesting connections between the slave trade, the finances, the Navy and, you know, diplomacy and war.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I yeah, I I mean I I have this note from this uh, nationalist from 1922 Kaysley Hayford. I don't know if you came across his work from in your research. It, no. But, but um yeah, he said it, 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 it's just a point it, Rod, I know I looked up his name because Rodney mentions this quote he says even before the British came into relations with our people we were a developed people having our own institutions and having our own ideas of government. So he's basically trying to tell the British that they're capable of governing themselves, which I And I stuff. agree with them a hundred
1: percent because yeah. when the British landed there, there was a complicated situation and that they had to uh, navigate by forming alliances with local people. <clears throat> so for example, if there is a, a town or a, you know, a group of, African people who live on the coast near one of your trading posts, they're going to take a proprietary attitude to the trade with that post. As in, you know, it's in our territory. So we have a say and it would be the very unwise factor who would aggravate or alienate the local people. So very often you find these uh, agreements between the British and the local people. Here's how, you know the trade's going to work, and here's who we'll trade with, and here's your cut. But then there's also uh, more people inland, which I'll get to in a little bit. I just find this whole story runs counter to the large-scale, you know, imperial colonial theories where they came in and dominated from day one.
0: Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. I think I think the more sophisticated uh, anti-imperialists that I am quoting don't uh, make that case. Yeah. They talk about the different phases and this is definitely a phase that's yeah. quite different from the scramble in the 1880s.
1: Yeah, 30s. so the, the African country, uh, company by the early 1800s, by about 1807, uh, they were finding the British government mostly ignored them the attitude of the British government towards their African business and, the, and colonies in quotations has been described as critical apathy with spasms of reforming zeal. <laughs> the, the British government has an excuse. They've been at war with France since 1793. This is like a 25-year war that is going to occupy most of their energies. And then there's the abolition of the slave trade, not the abolition of slavery, but in 1807, they abolished the slave trade. And in all of this business, I found that the colonial office had so few clerks that they couldn't deal with the correspondence from the rest of the empire. So most colonies received an average of one letter a year from London.
0: <laughs> there, just to show you care.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a case where the governor of Barbados died and London didn't find out until the following year. And, and their interest in Africa was minimal. Uh, at the time Africa was absorbing about three to 4% of British exports and accounted for less than 1% of British imports. Now this is to ignore. The triangular trade which we did an episode on mm-hmm. uh, you know and this is ignoring the value or the impact of you know the, th- the tens of the hundreds of thousands of slaves that you are taking to the new world but as far as you know the the colonial office in london is concerned africa is just not that important right. so the abolition of slavery changed a great deal so In 1807, the British government declares, we do not participate in the slave trade anymore. If you have slaves in the British Empire, you keep them, but you can't buy new ones. And of course, we have to start by saying that, all right, you changed the law. Does that mean that it was instantly observed across the British Empire? And of course, the answer is no. Plenty of Brits remained involved in the slave trade. The profits were too great. Also, you have this company that's been in the slave trade business for years, and they've been told, okay, now you have to change and do something else. So GM, no more cars. Good luck with your new business model. So the African company are looking for new trade goods, uh, new resources that they can possibly sell in Britain. And that means new slave, uh, sorry, new trade partners, shouldn't have said slave. Uh, (laughs) They're looking for new trade partners because their present trade partners just want to sell them more slaves. The abolition of slavery caught most Africans off guard. They, They really hadn't expected this to happen. Obviously, their slave trading partners, the Europeans, didn't tell them it was in the wind. And now they're being told, okay, we have to trade something else. And their reaction is, what? You serious? You don't really mean that, do you? And of course, they don't, so smuggling goes on. I found, though, that the relationship on the coast, that it was the the Africans who really had what the British called the whip hand. Mm-hmm. The The disparity in weapons is, is not so great. Uh, yeah. The Africans have muskets because that's what you gave them in the slave trade. And the company also has limited resources. These trading posts do not have garrisons of British soldiers. Uh, Too many of them would have died of disease, and you can't defend the forts anyway. They have a few cannon for psychological effect. But the whole coastal area of Ghana was dominated by a group of people who were a bit of a confederation called the Fante.
0: So are you suggesting that imperial firepower alone can't necessarily yield a lasting <laughs> um... <laughs> no but we did a number of episodes
1: uh including uh China uh certainly Afghanistan where you know british artillery and british weaponry just has longer range greater firepower more destructive and it's not even fair yeah. in this case it's the, the the disparity in weaponry is not there. And the Africans have the numbers and mm. the forts are isolated and occasionally vulnerable. So and this is
0: just like the difference that 40 years can make too. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Here I am. I'm, I'll give you some dates. In mm. uh, In 1802, Jacob Mould, the governor of Cape Coast Castle, arrested a local man for counterfeiting. And the result was an armed siege of the fort by his friends and relatives. And Mould had to basically hand the guy back with an apology. Sorry, sorry about that. In uh, 1812, Henry Meredith, the commander of Winnebaugh uh, Trading Post, was kidnapped and murdered. Now, the British retaliated. For years afterward, any British ship that sailed by would fire cannon at the town as they passed.
0: (laughs) That's what uh, I remember Lord Elgin did that. Uh... Yeah. To, to a bunch of Chinese.
1: But there's no question yes. of landing troops and you know conquering the place and punishing the, the guilty. It was just like retaliation from a distance. So uh, the Fante were totally capable of shutting off the trade and blockading the forts. And any British governor knew this, which is why you needed a working relationship with them and you keep them as friendly as you can. The Fante were the middlemen in the slave trade the slaves came from inland and the Fante could block their access to the British forts. So they are guarding their middleman position uh, and ready to fight for it. And that led to a conflict between them and the inland kingdom of Ashanti. Now, I don't know the distance from the capital, Kumasi, uh to the coast but it it's over 100 miles and a lot of that through difficult terrain they don't have a, you know a highway that leads direct to the coast so in 1807 there was a dispute between ashanti tributaries these are small rulers who pay tribute to the king of ashanti the Asantehene, and uh his name at in 1807 was osei tutu Kwamina. so there was a dispute between two of his tributaries two of his subjects he sent envoys to try to find out what's the dispute how can we resolve this and the tributaries murdered his envoys then afterwards realized oh that's probably going to tick him off so they fled to the fante for protection and the king sent envoys the Fante asking for permission to pursue these fugitives across Fante land and the Fante murdered his envoys again. So I guess the king decided that's a pretext and he attacked. He twice defeated an alliance of the, the rebel tributaries and the Fante. Who feigned submission? I don't know if this is a common trick, but they basically said, "Okay, we, you know, we submit." So he sent more envoys, who were murdered again. I, <sighs> that sounds like a terrible job, right? Ashanti <laughs> envoy. I don't know how they recruited
0: them. Wanted. <laughs> yeah. Co- <Optimistic> compensation. Person. <laughs> tremendous, uh, tremendous packages for early retirement. <laughs>
1: Yeah, or pension for your surviving relatives. (laughs) The Fanti were defeated a third time. And what this did is change the entire dynamic in the Gold Coast because the Ashanti reached the coast in person. And the British are now faced with, you know, this inland kingdom have now reached us. And what do we do? They could have supported the Fante. They could have, you know, obviously made a deal with the new power or they could have stayed neutral. And they, of course, being British, did a bad mixture of those. The governor of Cape Coast Castle, a man named Touraine, sheltered the fugitives and offered to mediate, which the Fante blocked. They don't want mediation.
0: Honest broker. Come on. Uh,
1: I guess maybe they knew better. don't let the british mediate uh one coastal people the anamabos uh unwisely decided to fight the ashanti they were heavily defeated and the governor of anamabo fort commander white took them in the ashanti stormed the fort uh took it and this is when governor terrain intervened and he made a deal And he made a deal by handing over one of the rebel chiefs. The second one escaped. I I don't know where to, but he basically handed over one of the guys he had taken in to protect. So he makes a deal with the Ashanti. Here's the guy you were looking for. Let's talk trade. And the Ashanti and the English cemented their deal by selling the captive Anamabos into slavery and splitting the profit. So there's a friendship that starts with a lot. A lovely business deal. So the first decisions that the British commanders made to protect the fugitives, they realized that was a mistake. Turain said it, the Ashanti will win wherever they go. Also, the British were discovering interesting things about the Ashanti, and especially about their king, Osei Tutu Komina. Uh, They remarked on his uh, tremendous forbearance meaning his patience, right? He could have just invaded the first time, but he kept sending these disposable envoys to try to work out a a peaceful solution. They also commented on his strict regard for his word, you know, by contrast with their...
0: With themselves.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So basically, now the way has been paved for a British Ashanti alliance. And the moment they hear about it, the committee in London say... Yes, that's what we want. A deal with the inland people, the, the, the more powerful ones. Yes. Uh, the parliamentary supervisors say, that sounds like a good idea, right? It'll keep us out of wars that are expensive and we can expand the trade. And the merchants of London, Liverpool, and Bristol all say, here, here, jolly good. And the British do not get an alliance, which you have to wonder, but wait parliament wants an alliance the merchants want an alliance the committee wants an alliance what what happened i mean all you really have to do is be neutral and slightly pro-ashanti that's not so hard is it (laughs) but here's where the men on the spot come in so i mentioned before they don't get a lot of direct control from london basically they can do what they want and, and write a letter explaining it which will reach London a year later. The men on the spot are traders, the factors. They are afraid of the Ashanti king. To them, he's an unknown despot who might hold a monopoly over the trade. In their own words, they describe the Fanti as fractious and difficult, but the Fanti were a confederation. And they could often be played off one against the other. You know, you can get a better deal from these guys if you, you know, that sort of thing.
0: So they liked dealing with the people who don't keep their word, etc. Well, it's
1: the devil you know, right? Yeah. We have personal relationships going back years with these guys. And in many cases, they have more personal relationships, that, you know, with taking unofficial wives, or mistresses, Mm -hmm. you know, so their business dealings have all been with the Fante and they're afraid to turn it over completely. First of all, are the Ashanti gonna stay and protect us because the Fante are gonna be pretty ticked off at us if we do this. So they retreated into neutrality and between 1809 and 1811, the Ashanti withdrew. They're not about taking over the territory directly They follow that tradition where, okay, we beat you, you are now our tributaries, you submit, you pay us a token fee that's more about prestige than about, you know, uh, economic advantage. And when the Ashanti withdrew, the Fanti immediately reorganized and started attacking any town that had submitted or, or sided with the Ashanti. So the king had to send help for his allies and the Fanti were defeated again. So British comments about these things going on are really, really fascinating. Uh, The Fante they describe as indolent, faithless, ferocious, deceitful, and and the list of pejorative adjectives just goes on and on.
0: Sounds like perfect allies. Yeah, our (laughs) friends.
1: And they describe the Ashanti as evidently better acquainted with the rules of decency and morality than any people we know of in this country. You could almost add, including ourselves. Or ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So 1807, as I said, changes things for the company. Uh, The African slave trade's been prohibited. They kept doing it. In 1816, the African society, these were abolitionists, they estimated that 60,000 slaves a year were still being shipped across the Atlantic. British slave traders were just flying the American flag or the Spanish or Portuguese flag to escape the British Navy. Here's a weird reaction. When the Ashanti were informed that the British would no longer be trading slaves, they thought that abolition was a British measure to put pressure on them or or a retaliation for their invasion of the coast. And th- that confusion lingered for quite a while. The Ashanti position was, oh, come on now, can't we, can't we go back to the slave trade, please? So the British had separate conflicting policies and and that leads to considerable confusion and you can understand why the Ashanti would be confused. So the company, the committee built on slave trade, they just want to survive abolition and keep their subsidies flowing. So they want to make themselves useful to the crown, uh, whatever it takes. We'll support abolition, we'll extend legitimate trade, anything you want, just tell us, we'll do it. The government don't know what they want. Should we shut the forts down? You know, cut off the uh, grant and save money? Should we use the forts as bases for suppressing the slave trade, right? British Navy ships could call in here, get food and, and fresh water and, you know, probably also information on where to catch the smugglers. Should we make a major effort to open new trade? Or should we just take the whole bunch of forts and merge them with the British colony of Sierra Leone under one governor? And this, of course, would scare the hell out of the company officials, as well as the uh, factors of the the forts on the coast.
0: Wait, what's the Sierra Leone story?
1: Sierra Leone is the British version of Liberia.
0: Liberia. Yeah, okay.
1: Only they're not kicking slaves out of Britain to go to Sierra Leone because there aren't that many African slaves in Britain. Instead, what they do is say, for example, a British naval vessel captures an illegal slave trader, a smuggler. So you've now captured this ship. The officers and crew will be arrested and they're gonna be taken back to London for trial. But what do we do with the slaves? So they drop them off in Sierra Leone and go
0: here. You go. You're free. So is that like the same sort of mortality rate too? And I don't think it was
1: as bad. But that's something I should look up. Thank you for mentioning it.
0: But it's not like a. It's not like a five star hotel accommodations. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, no, no. And and they're going to be put to work, of course. And
1: I don't even know if they got paid. Just it's just that finding out where they came from mm-hmm. and sending them home, well, it isn't yeah. going to work because they'll right. be you know taken as slaves again immediately. But we don't want to bring them back to England. What are we going to do with them?
0: Right.
1: Uh, and the third policy centered around the governor of Cape Coast Castle. The new guy was named Hope Smith, and his thing seems to have been uh, trying to protect the people of Case Co- Cape Coast from the Ashanti. And I, I tried to, fi- to find out why, and it, it's hard to do. Uh, I have his letters you know, back to the committee in London, but he's not gonna admit things that were well known by others. That for example, he had a mistress from the Cape Coast uh, indigenous people <laughs> And also there were accusations that he was selling the Ashanti inferior goods and they knew it. The King knew because he was also trading with the Dutch and the Dutch goods were better quality. So he would ask, why are you selling me this trash? (laughs) So you have these different sources of British policy and it's not like the company issues commands that are followed to the letter by the local governor. He's playing his own game. The British found out that the Dutch had sent a mission to the Ashanti and they thought, uh oh, we could get cut out completely. So the company sent instructions to Hope Smith uh, We're sending envoys and you facilitate their journey to meet the King of Ashanti. And Hope Smith, added his own very detailed instructions to the envoy's, you know, list of things to do, uh, including no mention of tribute from the people of Cape Coast, the African people, that is, he's protecting them, and uh, no mention of tribute and uh, like all these other things. So the company sent instructions, but the local governor has his own and they don't match. The king of Ashanti was no fool, he understood that Hope Smith was playing his own game. And the mission probably would have failed except for uh, intervention from Hope Smith's nephew, of all people. Thomas Boditch was his name, and he saved the mission with some uh, immediate honesty. And the king was uh, willing to take his word for it. So Boditch came home in triumph, wrote a book from Cape Coast Castle to Ashanti, published in 1819 and and quite popular. It it created a bit of a stir of interest in the interior of Africa, which, you know, the Brits knew nothing about.
0: Which the Africans greatly benefited from, this interest.
1: (laughs) No, I wasn't Uh. going there. (laughs) Uh, And then Uh. Bodich got into a big fight with the committee because he felt that they hadn't rewarded him enough and they hadn't promoted him. So he published a scathing critique Uh of the company and that, Uh, kind of put them on their last legs. Uh, There was another incident, a British slave trader named Richard Brew uh, arrived in Kumasi, this is the capital of the Ashanti Kingdom, claiming that the people of Cape Coast tried to murder him. So the king was pretty upset, protested to Hope Smith, and Hope Smith, as usual, defended the Cape Coast people. (laughs) Not, Not on the grounds that Brew was a slave trader, but You know, they didn't do it. He must have been talking about somebody else.
0: Wasn't me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: basically. So at this stage, the crown, uh, we got to figure out, is the company useful at all? What can we get from the Gold Coast? So they sent a consul. This is an official crown envoy, not under the company's control. And his name was Joseph Dupuy. He had uh, lived in Morocco for a time. So as far as the crown is concerned, that's Africa, right? So he he, <laughs> he can go yeah. and deal directly with the Ashanti. What they did was give the company and Governor Hope Smith a joint reason for wanting to sabotage this mission. They don't want it, the company doesn't want to get cut out, and Hope Smith, of course, has his own goals, like protecting the the people near his uh, his fort. So when Dupuy gets to the coast, he's got these continual attempts to undermine his mission, and um, and they do. It's sneaky, it's underhanded, it's delightfully tawdry. You know, <laughs> the, the sniping, the personality, at conflicts, the letters that are flowing back to London complaining about Dupuy's conduct. So Dupuy went to Kumasi, signed a treaty with the Ashanti, including an article that conceded the Ashanti king's sovereignty over the people of Cape Coast. The one thing that Hope Smith was fighting. Now, the colonial secretary, and I've seen these letters, must have been either scratching his head or just throwing them aside because they're just vitriolic. Both sides accusing the other, Dupuy's accusing the company and Hope Smith of treachery and all all of these things. (laughs) It wasn't until 1821 that the British government finally said, oh, enough of this crap, and they abolished the African company.
0: Oh, so this is... A, so There, when 1857, India, they had this precedent of... There you go. Abolishing the
1: company. And, and it came about for similar reasons. Incompetence, mm-hmm. fraud, <clears throat> stupidity, obstruction, like all the same reasons. Yeah. But this also puts the British crown in direct control, and that... Well, you know, they were pretty far away, hands off. Yeah. So now the company forts, the Gold Coast forts will be merged with Sierra Leone under the governor of Sierra Leone, Sir Charles McCarthy, a former army officer and committed abolitionist. This is a guy who took the moral stand, you know, slavery is wrong and we have to shut it down and so on. So he Mm -hmm. was briefed by Dupuy and by others. Unfortunately, he didn't like Dupuy, just personal (laughs) dislike. And the others who briefed him were former company officials and some of the fort governors who all agreed that Dupuy was horrible, that the Ashanti were bad news. When he arrived on the coast, he was late. The Ashanti had sent a delegation to meet him, but he took so long getting there that they went home. So, everybody he talked to was either a British company official, a merchant, or, you know, the people of Cape Coast Castle. And you can imagine what they had to say about the Ashanti. You know, the Dutch are intriguing with the Ashanti, they're slave traders. Right. right? So, McCarthy uh, basically took the position I'm going to defend these people, and I don't like the Ashanti. Uh, He had. Some troops, he had, uh, 200 Royal African colonial light infantry, and he had 350 troops from the second West Indian regiment. One of the sergeants from that regiment insulted, uh, an Ashanti and cursed the Asante This oh. is like cursing the Ashanti king, uh, in their culture, that is extremely bad. So he was kidnapped and held prisoner by the Ashanti. So to make a really long story slightly shorter, McCarthy took the advan- the advice of the anti-Ashanti lobby and decided on a limited military expedition to punish the kidnappers. Uh, he walked into an ambush, lost nine dead, 57 wounded, and the Ashanti forces retreated. They didn't want to fight the British. This is all a misunderstanding. Like <laughs> your guy committed a sacrilegious offense for which he has to be punished. We don't want to fight you. Yeah. Well, McCarthy does, so he found ready allies on the coast, uh, most, not all, of the coastal tribes and the Fanti Confederation, who are licking their jobs, here's a great opportunity. He got almost 30,000 men promised, and even at this stage, uh, this is 1823 by now, uh, a messenger from Osetutu Kumina reached the coast and expressed his interests in peace which didn't happen. Uh, a British captain named Blencarn led troops into the town of Accra, which was Danish, a Danish trading post at the time.
0: Which is now, I guess, the capital of Ghana.
1: It is. Or,
0: it, it is. Yeah.
1: Uh, while there, he surprised and captured a group of Ashanti traders. And then he rounded up with a cooperation from uh, the local chief, Aobado, and they rounded up all of the Ashanti in Accra, about 200 or so. The Danish merchants tried to protect uh, one Danish merchant. Sorry, tried to protect a, a group of Ashanti merchants, and they stormed his house. Uh, most of the prisoners were executed. Now, this is an embarrassing incident, even even for the British. You know, kidnapping and murder is not our mm. usual style. We prefer to bombard <laughs> you from long range and demand a treaty, but. The, the historical trail on that incident is really muddy. I, I suspect that a couple of uh, letters, you know,
0: probably a, b- a bunch of boxes of, uh, archives at the bottom of the ocean somewhere.
1: Mm, it, it's possible. Also the people <laughs> reporting on what happened, you know, most of them were involved. So it's, it's pretty hard to figure out how bad this was. Uh, in January of 1824, McCarthy led his army in person. He's going to attack the Ashanti. Uh, He made a mistake. He split his forces. And when the Ashanti ran into the group commanded by McCarthy, most of his allies ran away. Uh, McCarthy himself committed suicide to avoid capture. 177 dead, 90 wounded. Now, in the interval here, the Asantaheno Setutu Kwamina passed away, natural causes, so there's a new king. In 1826, the Ashanti were still trying to punish the uh, the local people of Accra who had changed sides and supported the British. They were defeated. Uh, Battle of Dodowa was very significant. There were less mm. than a hundred British involved and it was not a great victory. There was no pursuit.
0: Right, but that mystique of the Ashanti being invincible. Right, the myth of
1: invulnerability has been, been punctured and the ashanti basically returned home and decided all right we're we're no longer in control of the coast and they don't have to pay us tribute it left the coast in a way under british control rather than ashanti the fanti of course pursued a vendetta against their enemies uh the the brits were regretting their choice of allies they still want peace they still want trade And a new governor to replace McCarthy, uh, Governor Campbell, he saw the situation. He understood what Hope Smith had done and what McCarthy had done by error. And he came to the conclusion that the British should be allied with the Ashanti. These are our natural trade partners. We shouldn't be fighting them. And because he is the crown governor, that means there's only one policy. And that policy is going to be neutrality. In 1830, uh, another new governor, McLean, basically told Defanti, "If you want to fight the Ashanti, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. We're maintaining the forts as trade posts, but they're not garrisoned by British British troops. So we're we're neutral. If you if you go to war, good luck, but don't look to us for help." Right. So. The story, I think, is fascinating because it is so different from what happened 40 and 50 years later. Right. And why is that? Uh, Technological change by the 1870s and 80s, the Europeans have significantly better weapons. Yeah. And also the policy is very different. You you see here a hands-off approach by the British Crown. And, yeah. and that's not going to last, is it?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's very, it's, it is, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, a study to, to contrast this, this little adventure with.
1: And, and that was, comes that's pretty much the conclusion I, I would like to leave people with is, uh, you know, there are theories to describe what's happening everywhere but when you look at one specific example, sometimes it just doesn't fit, and, mm-hmm. and that's one of them, and there there's another, which I think we'll get to. Yeah.